0: Hi everyone, this is Tamir Nasir, Welcome you to another episode of my podcast, Leadership Biz Cafe, where we focus on talking with leadership experts and practitioners about some of the pressing challenges and issues leaders face today, and how they can succeed in leading others in today's ever-changing global business environment. Now before I introduce you to this episode's guest, I'd like to share some exciting news. First off, my company, Tanvir Nasir Leadership, has just launched a brand new website design that brings a sharper, cleaner look to the site, as well as showcasing my work as a leadership keynote speaker and corporate trainer. So, if you're looking for a speaker for your next event, or perhaps you're in need of a corporate trainer for your upcoming leadership retreat or training session, please do check out my website at tanvirnasir.com. That's dot com to learn more. Also on this new website, you can now find a dedicated podcast page for this show where you can not only stream all the episodes of my podcast, but you'll find a directory of all the show note pages for each episode of my show. There are also links to all the major podcasting platforms where you can subscribe to this show, so be sure to check this out on this new podcast page at tavernusseer.com LBC. And speaking of new things for this podcast, I'm delighted to announce that Leadership Biz Cafe is now available on Spotify. I'm thrilled to have this podcast included on this streaming platform, and you can find a link to this podcast on Spotify on the podcast page on my website. So that's just some of the exciting things that we have going on, and we have even more to come in upcoming episodes, so be sure to stay tuned for those developments. And with that, let's meet my guest for today's episode. People can find talent, people can find resources,
1: people can find products anywhere in the world, so you can't think like an incumbent, like it's 1985 and you're going to kind of hide and be mediocre and kind of uh, slip through, that's just not going to happen.
0: You know. One of the perks of my work as a leadership keynote speaker, corporate trainer, and leadership writer is that I get to meet and hang out with some truly exceptional and thought-provoking people, many of whom I'm grateful I also have the privilege of calling a friend. And today's guest definitely fits that profile. In addition to being a best-selling author, speaker, and entrepreneur, James Strock has also served in high levels of government office, where he has served as the founding secretary of the California Environmental Protection Agency and as the Chief Law Enforcement Officer of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. He has made appearances in numerous media outlets including the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and CNN. Recently, he released a revised and updated version of his book Serve to Lead, which he calls Serve to Lead 2.0, which he describes as being a 21st century leader's manual. In it, he makes the case that everyone can lead because we all have the opportunity and potential to help those around us to be successful in their efforts so that collectively we can all succeed and thrive. I'm going to talk to James about this idea and the concepts he shares in his book about how we can find our true calling in what James calls the golden age of leadership. So, Hi James, welcome to the show. Hello Tenver. it's wonderful to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, to start things off, I should give a little bit of disclosure here, if you will, that I've written an endorsement that appears in this book. But by the end of today's conversation, I'm confident that it will be clear to everyone why I was delighted that James had asked me to write an endorsement for this revised and updated version of his book. And so with that, James, I think a great place for us to begin our conversation about Serve to Lead is found in your book's subtitle, 21st Century Leader's Manual. Now, I'm sure you've probably read or been a part of conversations discussing the nature of leadership and how there's this odd dichotomy of referring to leadership with these timeless, enduring qualities and why we can glean insights and inspiration from leaders from the 21st century like Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., and so forth. At the same time, though, there is this recognition that today's leaders or 21st century leaders need to have things in their toolkits which pretty much even just a decade ago, were considered a bit much. Things like developing our emotional intelligence and creating an organizational culture that doesn't simply empower employees, but fosters a sense of inclusion and belonging amongst an increasingly diverse workforce. Now, I know you share in your book a concise definition of what leadership is, but James, could you help set the stage here in terms of what you mean by 21st century leadership? Sure. And and Tanvir, again, I'm so honored that you
1: have really become a part of this book. So thank you again for that. I, I think what I hope to do by focusing on 21st century leadership is to look in a very practical way at the differences of how things have to be done now to be effective compared to the very recent past. If you look historically, whether it's Gutenberg and the press, the modern uh, printing press, or whether you look at the early 20th century with the tabloid press and the first real expansions of film and and all this kind of thing, we're in a new phase like that with social media and the digital age. And, And each time this has happened, it's empowered more and more people and moved the possibilities of individuals making a difference to ever greater higher levels. And that's where we are again. And I think as a practical matter, one thing served to lead the book attempts to do is to sort out things that we tend to think are normal because we're used to them that are really mid 20th century constructs that are pretty unique to that time. And it turns out that a lot of things we have to think about today We can learn a lot from pre-20th century folks that were considered outdated for a while, let's say, in the 20th century. So, for example, there's a lot of Ralph Waldo Emerson in this book. Emerson tended to be quite often dismissed or forgotten in the mid-20th century. He's making a huge comeback now, being rediscovered. Uh, by new generations, because he represented in the, 19th, in the 1800s, the 19th century, a very entrepreneurial way of living and working that is much more like we have to do today. So I, I think to loop around to your, to your thought that you um, brought out here, again, we can learn uh, because of all our new capacities today from almost everybody else in history and pretty well get up to speed very fast on claiming the future.
0: And, you know, James, in your description of what 21st century leadership is, you detail 10 specific characteristics, one of which is engendering relationships with those around you that is based in love. Now, I've had other guests on my show that discuss this notion of love and leadership. My discussion, for example, with Tim Sanders in particular had a strong focus on this notion. But I'd like to ask you as someone who's served in leadership roles both in the private and public sectors, Do you think this idea of fostering relationships based on love through our leadership is gaining momentum? Certainly, there are 20th century examples we can point to as examples of exemplary leadership. But are we now getting to a point where every leader can begin to feel open to this and, in fact, recognize the benefits of leading from this vantage point? I
1: hope so. And I I think it's not only an ideal but it's a very practical way to operate. I mean, the fact is that we are so interconnected today. Like, just look at us today—you in Canada, myself in the United States—we're working together. We might as well be in the next office, but we're kind of in the same office in today's world. And uh, and then when you add to the, I think, the changing expectations of rising generations, the generation coming up after the millennials, as well as the millennials who are now hitting middle age, uh, the elder millennials, as Eliza Schlesinger likes to call herself, uh, they want more and more connection in all parts of their lives. So whether it's the workplace, the marketplace, they want connection. And simply looking at transactions is to miss half the point and frankly, not likely to be very effective. Right. So I think it's, it sounds, at first glance, I can understand when one talks about love in a lot of contexts, particularly in tough-minded situations in business or in politics, some people's initial reaction is to guard their wallet. But the fact is, uh, it, it really is a practical thing. And what I think we're going to see, and we're starting to see, is a thirst to unite the spiritual and the temporal, not in a religious sense that that excludes people, but in a general sense that can bring us together. So I think it's a very positive thing and a very practical thing.
0: Oh, I totally agree. And, um, you know, it's somewhat of a sad irony that we're talking about the importance of love and leadership. And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up to you, because you and I share so much similarities and viewpoints when it comes to leadership, because I think for many of us, we are seeing that idea of love and leadership Uh, manifesting itself in terms of corporate social responsibility, right? That's become the new umbrella where a lot of organizations are realizing that there is a benefit to showing our ideal customer or our potential customers that we're not just after the upsell, we are after also showing them that investing in our product and our service, we are putting that to some good use, we're paying it forward to our communities, we're putting it towards clean water initiatives towards eliminating malaria, poverty, what have you. But I think what we're not seeing that migrate towards in terms of love and leadership is towards the relationship, the dynamic between leaders, managers, and their employees, where, for example, we see leaders of companies that are reaping massive profits, claiming that they can't afford to pay their employees a living wage. And in some cases, some of the worst cases we're seeing today, we're seeing leaders spreading divisiveness through fear and hate to push their own self-serving agendas. But I think that's why discussions like this are important because it reminds us not only of those leaders who got what leadership is really about, but also how any of us can do and act differently when it comes to leadership.
1: Well, well, you well, you raised a lot of great issues. I I was taking notes as you spoke, there, Tanvir, and just a few quick reactions. Uh, one is, I think among your points is you can see for example, you mentioned the environment and social and governance issues, uh, which I've been deeply involved with, you see an increasing melding of public and private action, right? So it, right. so for example, particularly when governments have become in many cases ossified and they're crippled in bureaucracy or in also divided politics like the United States, you see situations where, uh, for example, in Hurricane Katrina, where the government had very tragic failures, You had Walmart, for example, become a key emergency responder. Unbelievable situation uh, and incredibly effective that people will not forget and that bonded many people, which is particularly interesting because Walmart tends to be, for the most part, highly transactional, right? It's all about the low cost. That's it. But even Walmart, they got out there and created that relationship and were effective Another reason, of course, that these companies are trying to create these relationships uh, is to get the talent to come into the companies. You know, these days you just cannot get people when they have options uh, unless they can see they're part of something much bigger. Absolutely. On the question you mentioned about the, sometimes there's a lack of alignment between the expressed notions of companies and not just companies, but also you know, a division between what they say and what they do, basically. And I I think even there, there's reason for optimism, because, for example, in the case of greenwashing, so-called, that you referred to, with a company that might have a bad record or not an exemplary record on the environment, but they're putting themselves out as if they do, that's never bothered me much, because once they put those markers out there, they're going to be held to it, and they're going to have a problem if they don't meet them. So, I view that as a very untenable situation that kind of company gets into. And bear in mind, I I was head of law enforcement for the US for the environment at one time. And, And one thing people don't think about, but it's very obvious once you reflect on it, is often the best people who hold companies accountable, both legally and otherwise, are competing companies. They've got the information, they've got the motivation, They'll often be quiet about it, but when I was head of enforcement, a lot of our biggest tips would come from competing companies. It just, There's no way that company is doing what they say. And it was incredibly valuable. And now, with the cell phones and whatnot, if a company gets out there and starts playing fast and loose, you can have citizens go out with their cell phones. And God knows what you can turn up. And the other issue then that relates to a step deeper is the value of transparency, right? So whether it's the corporate profits and the the use of the corporate revenues and so on, the more we can get transparency and the more we can use digital media or digital communications to get things shared, the more powerful you're going to be. I'm going to give you a precise example. Uh, I do a lot of work with a wonderful not-for-profit in Germany called Deutsche Umwelthilfe that's been among other things, involved in helping to uncover some skullduggery alleged of some automakers you might have heard of. Now, think about this a minute. In today's world, I could be sitting in the United States, half a world away, and we can be comparing notes and putting our our thoughts together in a way you could never have done in the past. So just as at one time multinational companies were able to elude accountability when they were a step ahead, Well, now we all have those same tools, and they're held accountable as never before.
0: It's just a remarkable time. Very positive. Love it. Love it. See, this is why I'm so thrilled to have you on my show here today, uh, James. Um, So let's dive into the real heart of your book, James, where you share how we can embrace the principles of 21st century leadership and how we can accomplish this by asking ourselves four questions about the way we lead. So what are these four questions, James, and perhaps more importantly, why these four questions? Mm-hmm. Well, well, the purpose of the book. I, let me back up a step, and I
1: might tend there about why I wrote this book. Sure, because it might help elucidate it. Um, I have written several books, and I've just written books that I wanted to read that I couldn't find. Right. So, in the leadership realm, like you, I've read tons and tons and tons of books, and and gotten a lot out of many of them. There were certain things. I didn't feel had been expressed in the way that I would have found most useful. So I said, well, you know what? I think I'm just going to write it myself. The the point of the book is not for me to sit here and go, well, here is me. Here's what you might want to think. It's like, well, yeah, and that's not very very compelling. (laughs) I'm trying to put together a system that's simple where people can access a tremendous amount of, Thinking from others as well as their own best thinking and crafting their own leadership approach. So, in doing that, I eventually narrowed it down to four questions. And they're meant to be applied on a regular basis if one gets in the habit of thinking this way. The first is simply to look at this in any situation who am I serving? Now, that sounds so basic, and it is, but it's easy to forget. You know, we all get so busy, we get caught up in circumstances we didn't set up. And we can make things very complicated, but whether you're doing something on communications or management, returning it back to who you're serving and being certain that you're not inadvertently serving yourself and muddying things up through pride or habit or custom or, or just selfishness, uh, those things can clear up a lot. So the book there also talks about developing service maps to really update who we're serving because we tend to accrete these things over time and may lose sight of who we're serving and why. The second comes directly out of that, and that's to say, how can I best serve in a given situation? It may not be obvious. I might think I'm really good at X, but the circumstances may not be looking for that. It may be for something different, but how can I specifically best serve? The third moves back a little more internal to say, Am I making my unique contribution? You know, over time, if you're not contributing in the way that only you can do, and I would argue everybody has something that only they can do, if you're not doing that, you're not serving properly, and that's going to affect yourself and others, at the very least in terms of lost opportunity. And finally, and this question's evolved a bit, just to ask, what am I learning? Because you want to be... One wants to be also thinking throughout, at regular times, you know, how am I improving through this? What am I becoming? If I'm simply doing the same thing over and over and over again, that's not going to work. And that's not going to make anyone useful over time. And so hopefully that also becomes a factor and sort of an accountability for oneself.
0: Okay, I'm trying not to rub my hands with glee here, uh, James, because there's so many things I want to unpack here, uh, because this is just so much great stuff, but... To start off with uh, your discussion, these four questions, there's something you bring up that really helps to coalesce things for me, and that is that as leaders, we need to evaluate our actions, our contributions, our efforts from the perspective of those we lead, that as you write, it's their interpretations based on their goals and their needs that really quantifies how successful we are as leaders and going back to our discussion about love and leadership i think that this is that critical element that's missing which is causing those growing antagonisms we see in both the private and public sectors when it comes to the dynamic between leaders and all those they are obliged to serve absolutely well and you know uh,
1: without getting into partisan issues that are divisive anywhere in the western world at the moment I, every country i'm aware of uh, among the you know the former british colonial uh, nations, I'm thinking of uh, Canada, Great Britain or United Kingdom might not be united that much longer, Uh, (laughs) Australia, New Zealand, United States. Um, We all have these dreadful partisan divides that have become very personalized the way they've been used by political leaders and, or I I hate to call them leaders, politicians, I don't think they're leaders for the most part. So in the United States, I don't need to give names, but we can all know who we're talking about. <laughs> if you look at the the last presidential election, what was so striking to so many people, and one reason that you had record levels of dissatisfaction, the highest measured in the polling era, just off the charts, with our uh, two major presidential candidacies, is they were each viewed as supremely self-serving mm-hmm. by massive numbers of the public. Right. Yeah. And the choice was one that became uh, and distasteful to tragic, depending on one's point of view. And uh, it's a real issue. It's, uh, and a lot of these politicians today simply don't get it. And a lot of the public doesn't have reason to recognize that we're being divided by all these folks that have a stake in maintaining that system. They tend to think once they get to the top of it, that for all the weaknesses it had, it did produce the best person ever, that is themselves and then they wanna keep it. And so I know in the United States and I, I know other countries I watch, um, there's a clear sense that politicians, uh, from the point of view of most people, not, not simply, their are partisans. And, and to put this in perspective, in the United States, we have now about, and it varies a little bit, I watch it every month from Gallup, about 44% of Americans self-identify, American voters, self-identify as independent now of either of our major political parties. And right around 28% are Democrats and 28% are Republicans. So you you can see that tells you a lot right there. And our systems are still based upon a time when those two parties commanded the allegiance of the vast majority of the electorate, which is long over. So we have a pretty dysfunctional situation, but it where this all started uh, it's pretty clear that while they may have different presentational skills so many of our politicians are pretty clearly serving themselves or a system and not taking risks to serve the rest of us and the thirst for that to change i know in america is just profound but the way to get there is going to be a, a difficulty
0: Right. And it's exactly what I noticed when I was reading your book and reading about these four questions, that a lot of that was because there was not a lot of intentional thought and reflection being put on, which seemingly look like and sound like simple questions. But I honestly, when I was reading it, I found like some of them, when you really think about it, are quite profound. For example, your question, are you making your unique contribution? I mean, talk about a question that gets you to sit up and pay attention. I really love this question, James, because it reflects many of the ideas I've shared in my writing about leadership, that it's not enough to think about leadership is about hitting quarterly targets. Yes, those are important, but they're really, as Peter Drucker has often written and spoken about, they're really the byproducts of your real efforts, which should be about encouraging people to do meaningful work. And to be honest, when reading your book, it reminded me of something that I think about, which is that I think we tend to trip ourselves up because when we talk about work, it's often from that negative connotation of I have to do work, that I have to slog through this in the hopes that doing what I'd really love to do. But I think we need to view work as being quite literally something we need to work on, that this is something we have to push ourselves to do and be better at, which to your question means we're making our unique contribution, which, you know, won't be easy, which is why it's work but the journey of achieving it will be fulfilling. Mm -hmm. No, that's so well said. There's so much in what you said. I mean, one
1: thing as as you and I are keenly aware, and people who would listen to a podcast like this are deeply aware of, is that if a person is, say, 20 today, they've got to look to a future where their education will be valuable only as a means to learn how to learn, which is not to diminish it, It's much like that now, but the notion of getting school training to undertake tasks that one would then continuously perform for 40, 50 years, that's just not how it's going to work. They're likely going to have to relearn uh, and retool, reset every three to four years. And that's not to be frightened of. It does mean a lot of our institutions will also have to adjust, including social insurance, all the rest, which was set up in the industrial era But these are all doable things. We've done it before in history. Uh, In terms of meaningful work, you said it so well. I mean, work ought to be viewed as a sacred act. And we talk about one's calling. That's a religious or spiritual etymology of the whole notion of a calling. It's greater than oneself. And it's a unique achievement. It's also again, very, very practical. It's like the love situation and it's not some airy fairy stuff. I mean, it's, it's very down to earth because unless you are making a unique contribution, A, you're not doing your best and you're likely becoming irrelevant or less valuable by the minute. And you're certainly not gonna be able to differentiate yourself or the organization you're part of as best in the world and as we all know, I mean, look at the fact you and I are talking in real time across the world this minute. Uh, people can find talent, people can find resources, people can find products anywhere in the world. So you can't think like an incumbent, like it's 1985, and you're going to kind of hide and be mediocre and kind of uh, slip through. That's just not
0: going to happen. I love it. And, you know, people who've listened to a couple of my shows are probably realizing that I'm grinning here because of the fact that you started your explanation about talking about learning and how we have to be lifelong learners, right? That once we leave school, it's not like, okay, well, now I don't have to learn anymore. No, you actually, if anything, your learning is now really is going to begin because now it's on you to figure out. What do I have to learn next? What do I have to understand next in order to make sure that I'm continuing to contribute in a way that not only benefits my organization, but benefits me in terms of what I want to achieve with my life? And I I like the idea that here you're talking about mediocrity and so forth, because in your question and your discussion in your book about that question of what are you learning— You talk about the importance of learning, not just from our mistakes, but from our failures. And I love this point because, again, it reflects something that I've written a lot about. In fact, just this year alone, I've written two pieces about leadership and failure. One about how Walt Disney learned about optimism from failure, which almost doomed his career before it even began. And another one where I share a personal example of how failure actually taught me how to become a better listener as a leader. Uh, And so for those who are interested, I'll be adding links to those articles in the show notes of my website. But in this discussion of failure and leadership, you point out that by having this, what you often refer throughout your book, this outside-in focus uh, which goes back to that first question of who are you serving, we can develop a resilience to failure because now it's not about our ego or our sense of self-value, but how are we going to serve those under our care in response to this setback or to this failure?
1: Yes. No, I mean, you make so many good points there. I mean, I, I think it's exactly right. I, I'm reading a book right now about a life that has more failure and more ultimate accomplishment than almost any other. So we still study it. Winston Churchill. There's a new book you may have seen by Andrew Roberts, the British historian. Oh, yes. Uh, which is, and I, I have studied and read about Churchill and reflected on him for many, many years. Uh, this book nonetheless adds tremendous value because what Roberts does is to basically look at the entire life of Churchill, which had an awful lot of failures, um, from the point of view of Churchill's view of his own destiny and how he was able to overcome things that almost anybody else would have been crippled by or just skulked off and given up. And so the, the context of how one thinks about these things for resilience and one learns from mistakes are so key. I think, to your point, almost anyone of significant accomplishment, has had spectacular failures that anyone could, could see or learn about quickly. I, I was listening the day to Ray Dalio, who wrote that fine book, uh, Principles, and has a new free book about the history of debts and finance. You know, he's one of the top hedge fund managers in the world, and he lost everything 30 years ago. He thought he was riding high. In retrospect, he got ahead of himself a uh, lack of humility in his own recitation. He lost everything where he had to, and he was from humble beginnings. He wasn't he wasn't uh, working uh, with the benefit of some really rich person who takes risks knowing that there's a backstop. He had a more, more normal situation that way. He was reduced to having to borrow money from his parents who were not wealthy just to keep his family afloat for the month to decide whether he would come back or not. From that, he did come back, obviously, and he developed a way of doing business that was totally retooled because he was able to learn from his mistakes, as you say. And I can't think of anyone at a high level that hasn't done something like that. A good lesson for all of us. It also goes to one more thing. You've got a scientific background, among other things, and I think one of the benefits of that for leadership, if it's used correctly, is an experimental mindset. I mean, if you're Thomas Edison, you're not going to sit there and go, oh my God, this week was a total failure. I failed on 30 things. Uh, No, you're going to say, oh my God, we experimented. We're just this much closer to an incandescent light bulb. You know, That's a matter of framing one's uh, encounters with reality in a way of crafting the narrative of one's experience to make it be of service
0: to others as you apply it absolutely and to your point about the scientific mind it also applies in terms of when things are going well right that you don't sit on your laurels and you're always like okay well things are going well How can we tweak it? How can we improve it? And yes, sometimes that might lead to, oh, whoop, that didn't work out. And then you just go back and reset to what was before, but you still learn something. You find, you understand, okay, it's more valuable to the people I serve if I offer this or if I do that. And so then that shapes, for example, James, you and I, before we started talking uh, for the show, I had mentioned to you how in terms of the the format for this podcast, initially I had in my mind, because online you read a lot of articles when you have a podcast you should try to keep it under 30 minutes make it nice and short so a lot of the conversations I'd have with my earlier guests tended to be very short concise to the point but then I had one guest and we got into such a delightful conversation it went well past the 30 minute mark and there was so much good stuff I said let's just leave it let's post it see how people respond to it people respond to it too well okay was that just because of who the guest was or because of the content because we were able to dive deeper so I did it a few more times and sure enough Those episodes were well received by my audience. So it demonstrates that even in terms of whether it's failure or even in terms of you have this, you know, things are going well. They're not great, but they're going well. You're comfortable. There's still opportunities for you to learn, to explore, to your question of what you are learning. How can I improve? How can I be better? How can I better serve? the people who I'm trying to provide a benefit, in this case, this podcast, where I'm trying to figure out what would add even more value to my audience, and even why some of these episodes now, the newer ones I'm putting out now, I'm starting to tweak the format, the structure, just because I want to see what resonates with my audience, what's going to make them feel. They're enjoying this more, they're getting more value out of these podcasts. So again, here's a real-world example of applying the very things that James and I are speaking about today. And I think
1: it's brilliant, and and it's likely to continue to evolve over time as long as you keep that mindset of serving, because you're going to get all these inputs from people you're serving. Who knows what that may lead to? On um, the other way around, if you were to say, "I'm really good and I really enjoy doing it this way," well, who are you serving there? You you you'd be serving yourself. Is that simple, right? And that's dangerous. And the other thing we all know is that, I I think it was Peter Drucker who pointed out so many things we still live off the insights of and learn from, that there's nothing more dangerous than, and he's speaking of companies here, like 40 years of success. Well, it could be much shorter than that for an individual. It could be a year or two. And there's always that risk of beginning to focus too much on ourselves or, Doing it indirectly by, let's say, all of a sudden serving a little bureaucratic enterprise or or the people in our company in a way that's dysfunctional that loses the connection with those customers and so on. That takes constant vigilance. Uh, The temptation is always so great to head toward a comfortable incumbency, but that is so precarious and dangerous for all concerned, that it's got to be resisted. I I think there is nothing more beneficial, as I think about it, than having some early failures in one's own mind, ideally that didn't affect others so much as oneself, but that give one that kind of valuable perspective and, and vigilance against, again, incumbency.
0: Right. It's that thing we hear about every now and then of the permission to fail but we have to first give that to ourselves because if we're relying on other people to give it to us, it's still going to be when that moment comes, we're still going to have that moment of feeling it's... You know, on us. And I think that's why I love these four questions that you share in your book, because it really does take your ego out of the equation, because it's really about what am I doing right by the people I serve? I mean, you will do initiatives that won't work out. They won't have the result, the desired response that you were after. But for the most part, I could say 98% of the initiatives that we take on, none of them are so... Unforgivable, they don't lead to such disastrous results that they're actually going to cause someone harm. It's just going to not have a pleasant response or it'll get like no response. And that reaction tends, especially if it's a no response that tends to hit us more in terms of our ego than in terms of us being a leader. Because if you're a leader and you get no response, you shrug it off and you move off. But if you're looking at it from the point of the ego, you're thinking, well, this obviously was something you thought would be good. That's why you put your efforts, your resources, your time towards it. And when it gets no reaction, it's really easy to feel like, oh, you know, this didn't work out. I don't understand. How come people don't appreciate? And I get that a lot from leaders like, oh, I've done this for my employees. I do this and they don't seem to appreciate it. And I keep thinking, and I'm going to use some of these questions. Well, who are you serving (laughs) to really help them understand? Wait a minute. What is your point? Is it because you didn't get the response that you wanted? Or is it about that they didn't get what they needed from you?
1: Yes, I think it's well said. And it points to the fact that the... If people were to leave this podcast or to leave the book with one thing, and I always ask for any situation, what's the one sentence you're going to leave with? Um, Not that that's meant to be the only thing, but still you need to, one needs to have a clear sense of what something or someone's about. Who are you serving is a question of accountability. You know, whether it's for yourself or for others and it's, powerful and it's so basic. On your there there is a key countervailing force that makes it in some ways more difficult to fail right now, despite all the talk about, well, you know, fail fast and so on. And that is that in the digital age, everybody's worst moments can be cataloged and represented in the worst possible light uh, forever and sit there. And I think that's something we're still just learning to work through. You know, politicians are are somewhat used to that, right? Uh, but now that CEOs and others in the internet age are facing similar scrutiny, it's often something they've really got to learn and get used to because they're not. So you know, for example, you know, you might have the best record—not you, of course—here. Uh, one might have the best record uh, as a CEO in terms of everybody's viewpoint, but if if uh, that person were to get drunk and hit their boyfriend or girlfriend or or treat a child badly or something on a cell phone feed their entire leadership could be wrecked and their career could be destroyed if not you know just greatly set back this this is a new thing and uh, you know in political campaigns in America it's a common thing at the higher levels for the democrats and republicans to have people follow their opposing candidate literally 24 7 with video cameras and now of course the public can do this too just looking for that moment they slip up or or and to hope that can be used to paint a picture entirely bad based upon this one very powerful rendering that's also something to deal with it has not been totally sorted out yet and it's It's a level of accountability on all of us uh, that's going to continue to rise and, and require a lot of sorting out, I
0: think. Again, James, I'm sure it's maybe coming across, but I'm grinning ear to ear here because your comments here just brought to mind something that you bring up in your chapter where you talk about the context of serving to lead in management, because there's two quotes in this chapter that I earmarked. I said, I have to share this because these are just absolute gems. And so I want to share them because especially one of them touches on exactly what you were just discussing. The first one is that you write about empowerment where you write, empowerment incurs in big and small ways. The big ways include a culture of relentlessly pushing authority and capacity for action to the level closest to the customer. Effective delegation is not a static concept. It is dynamic, constantly evolving. And the other quote addresses the idea of how managers can serve by holding employees to account where you simply state and eloquently state, the greater the autonomy, the greater the accountability. And I've got to use that in one of my talks. I love it so much. And it, it just builds on what you were talking about and the concept of this idea of leadership in this new environment with social media and so forth, that it's now dynamic and constantly evolving. But just bringing into this context of serving to lead in the concept of management, could you talk about how managers can serve those they lead by empowering them, but at the same time holding employees to account? Because I've actually had a number of my talks where I get leaders to recognize that when we talk about accountability it's not blaming employees it's really about empowering them to have a sense of ownership not just an ownership over okay well this went wrong but ownership over what's the solution going to be to how we're going to improve moving forward yeah no that's so well said
1: i mean i i, I think it you know what tends to often happen is that people are not given a lot of autonomy. And then they're held accountable for things that may not even been in their control. And it's an entirely dysfunctional, self-serving situation by whoever is allowing that to happen. I mean, if everybody involved comes together to agree on certain metrics, and they're going to vary depending on circumstances, then it seems correlative with that that at the same time, you've got to confer, or you ought to be in a position to confer, all the greater authority to those people to figure out how they're going to do it. Uh, they're closest to it, that's where the creativity is. And, and they involve different tasks. you know, the accountability and the creating, the metrics, and then the person who is actually going to be part of a group, coming up with how to do it, then doing it those are separate tasks, much, much like a coach versus, say, a professional ball player. Uh, they may be related, but they're different. And to get the best result, I think they need to be kept a bit distinct.
0: Right. And speaking about this chapter where you advise managers on how they can serve better their employees, there's this great section I love where you talk about managers should focus on the things that only you can do. That if you're doing something that you could delegate to an employee, that you're not offering your unique contribution as a leader. And I think these four questions you provide really help leaders to recognize not only the power of delegation and with it, the ability to get more ownership and authority, but also how doing so is actually mutually beneficial because you're allowing both the employees and yourselves as leaders to truly become that better version of who we can be in that role because we're bringing the best of ourselves to every touch point in the work that we do.
1: Yes. And what you lay out so well is, is, as you know, a recurring practical issue with people who are new to management tasks, right? Because they're often promoted based upon a technical skill or a repeated uh, practice. And then they're said, okay, you're so good at that. Now we're going to make you the manager as if it's like a reward or something. It's automatic. And without proper training and vetting, it can be a total misfire. Because the role of the manager uh, all of a sudden is to bring out the best in others far more than like an entry person learning their own capacities and being self-focused to a necessary extent. And there's then the temptation amid all the uncertainty of it for a person simply to try to repeat what they've done, not recognizing that while they're the same, uh, their task isn't the same. Their service is not the same. So far from the comfortable uh, replication of familiar ways of thinking and acting, uh, being safe, it's very dangerous and hurts everyone and can lead to
0: a problem very fast, often does. Right, exactly. Okay, James, I want to jump to another section of your book where you look at these four questions in the context of effective communication. And again, there's another wonderful line you write here that I'd like to share, which is, Focusing on those you are serving rather than yourself is the greatest single factor in effective communication. Everything else is built on this foundation. And I love how, in this chapter from your book, you point out how to answer that question of how you can best serve in terms of effective communication is by actually listening to those you serve, which, as I've shared in many of my talks, most leaders actually don't do a very good job of. In fact, there are numerous studies done by various organizations that show that this is one of the biggest issues employees have with their leaders—that they don't feel like they're being heard and understood. well You know, it's interesting because, um, and you and I and others in our field
1: do a lot of communication. That's a lot of what we do, right? We're in some sense—I mean, you are an educator throughout, and others of us—that's at least part of our role as an educator. And you, you see the great danger in uh, the fear, what people are really afraid of is embarrassing themselves, like giving a speech or something, which is reasonable, but uh, it's a trap they gotta get out of because it shows a sort of terminal self-consciousness that ultimately is self-serving, uh, no matter how they intend it or how they think of it, from the context of those they ought to be serving. I'll give you a quick anecdote about two communicators and the difference it makes about what you're saying at a very practical level about listening to those you want to serve. Richard Nixon, our disgraced, but incredibly consequential politician who ran for national office, I believe, five times, right, on tickets, and he was successful, four of them. And he was known as a very effective speaker. And he, and that often overcame people's views of his other limitations, in fact. And Nixon gave some advice to ronald reagan when reagan who became known as the great communicator was starting up a bit in politics and nixon they were the same basic age but nixon was far similar having been elected to the vice presidency before he was 40 years old and nixon told reagan he said when you go to give a speech to a group uh, just don't even have dinner in the dinner part just come on like dramatically when it's time to give your speech and you'll wow them and so on. Reagan listened to that and just thought, no, he didn't do that at all. He did the opposite. Reagan would get early to the events, which most speakers would not do. He would hang out. He'd go to the pre-cocktail party or something. He'd be listening to people. He'd be at the dinner also observing and seeing what interested people. So when he talked, he could connect at a much deeper level. Nixon would impress them with his, Nixon's knowledge, but Reagan would also be responding to something deeper and more topical about what the people actually cared about. And I think that may seem like a minor thing, but I think it expresses a lot and it helps under, helps us understand why Reagan was historically effective as a communicator in a way that Nixon wasn't.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, again, um, when I was reading that story, it actually reflected my own experiences because that's one of the things I like to do as well. I like to go and meet some of the people and that moment gives you such good material. I remember, for example, when I gave a keynote in Chicago and I took the L train from the airport to my hotel and I noticed how... Before we left, the conductor would get on at the front of the train, and he started saying something, and I could not make out what he was saying. Then he would walk to about the halfway point, and he would quickly repeat the same message. Because he was kind of closer to me, I could make out what he was saying. And then he left the train, and that was it. And I asked people in the audience. I talked to people before. And then I asked them if they had a similar experience. Some of them had heard it, others hadn't because they were listening to music or they were working on something on their laptop, so they weren't really paying attention. But a number of them had noticed this exercise. So when it came up to this point in my talk where I was talking about communicating effectively, I shared with people this conductor's behavior and I asked if they knew what he was trying to say. Most people said, it's probably a safety thing. And I said, no, that's not at all what he was saying. The message he was trying to impart to us was, On behalf of the Chicago Transit Authority, I would like to thank you for taking our public transit and to helping to reduce congestion in our city. That was his message. But because he had done it in such a mechanical, detached fashion, it really didn't land. And notice how most of you hadn't noticed that he was trying to basically express appreciation for you being on the train to come into the city. And so here's a moment where he could have had a wonderful touch point to make us come into his city feeling welcomed, feeling appreciated for us making this effort to help the everyday commuters have one less Uber or taxi or what have you clogging up their roads because we're opting to take this transit that's being offered. But it was lost on so many of us because of how it was delivered. I could not have given that moment Had I not taken the time to talk to people to see, did anyone else experience this or was that just my experience, at which point you wouldn't relate to it? And because I shared that story, I saw so many people smiling at that story and all those people going, oh, my God. And afterwards, a lot of them are saying, you know what, I'm going to take the train. I'm going to look out to see if he does that on the way back. You can't have those touch points unless you actually make the effort to reach out. And the reason I share the story, it had nothing to do with me. I mean, I had the same experience with this conductor as the rest of them had, but it was really about how this little example that they experienced can help them better understand when I'm trying to communicate to my employees Am I actually listening to what it is they need to hear from us? And am I delivering it in a way where it's really going to have the impact they need to have as opposed to me just saying it and I'm thinking, okay, well, I told you, so you should have understood what I was trying to tell you. You know, what a wonderful
1: story. And of course, you could have been working the entire week before at the world's greatest pre planned presentation and you might have never gotten anything close to the connection. It sounds like you achieved by listening and being attuned to your audience once you were there.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of them asked me, too, saying how, didn't you have a prepared talk? Because, you know, with you putting that in, I felt like I said, no, I had a prepared talk, but I always like to shape it so that I am giving you information that's relevant to you of what it is that you're coming here to hear from me about that you can then take back and use in your organization. And that's the real point of effective leadership. And then again, looking at those questions that you have here of who are we serving and how are you serving? You know, one way that I think about that issue you've raised
1: so well is there's the piece you wrote, there's the piece you think you wrote. And most importantly, there's the piece that other people think you wrote and they're all slightly different. and, and. And so one has to think of that creative work as something separate, as you say, from oneself and certainly separate from one's ego, because if if it's a, really about oneself, it's only going to be a value when it happens to be something that is universal, and that's unlikely to come out of a self-focus. Even then, it's an acknowledgement that, or a trust that something that you think is personal to you might be shared by other people, but
0: hasn't been expressed or articulated. And that's a rare moment. Absolutely. So James, it's become my favorite way to end the conversation by asking my guests to share one key insight that they want to leave our listeners with, which actually is a nice segue from what we've been talking about in terms of effective communication and and basically the very theme of your book of who are you serving. So what's one key message you want to leave our listeners with, whether that's to contemplate on or to consider taking action on? I would hope that
1: listeners would consider applying this one question to themselves throughout their life and work for a bit, just habitually looking at situations and asking who we're serving as we do them. A lot of things we do just through custom or through habit or familiarity may not really be serving others as we initially thought they would or assumed they would and they might even worse be self-serving or prideful and the more we can pluck those things out uh, the more effective we're going to be at serving others and as the book makes the argument and i think science backs this up as far as it can and spirituality does that when one is connected to and serving others in productive relationships the world finds a way to keep that service going and will work around you and with you to help you
0: accomplish great things. Wonderful. Again, James, it's been truly a pleasure to have you on my show. We've been engaging for a number of years online. I'm just delighted that we finally got this opportunity to get together and talk about something that we both clearly care about, and that is how leaders can truly serve those under their care. So thank you so much for sharing these insights. I really appreciate it, James. Well, thank you so much, Tan Veers. It's been an
1: honor, and it's a real pleasure to get to speak with you in person, although I feel like I know you, and now the voice will have even more resonance because I learned so much from your fine work, and thanks for your tremendous service.
0: Thanks, James, for the kind words. Appreciate it, my friend. As I told you at the start of the show, we were going to get some interesting insights and an encouraging outlook on why this really is a golden age of leadership from best-selling author, entrepreneur, and former public servant James Strzok, and he certainly delivered on that. Now, if you want to learn more about James's latest book, Serve to Lead, as well as those articles I mentioned I wrote on what Walt Disney learned about optimism from failure, as well as a piece about what one of my own failures as a leader taught me about becoming a better listener, Check out the show notes for this episode at com slash LBC. That's T-A-N-V-E-E-R-N-A-S-E-E-R dot com slash L-B-C. And that's a wrap for another episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. If you have any questions or comments, drop me a note through the contact form on my website, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review my podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you find and listen to this podcast. And don't forget, you can now also listen to this show on Spotify as well. And you can find links to subscribe to my podcast on these platforms on the podcast page at tavernasir.com LBC. With that, I'm Taverneseer, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.